So I don't know if you've heard, but election day is coming up on, on, on Tuesday. So I, wanna, I hope you've heard. Uh, so I want to invite us to reflect a little on the state of our democracy. After all, the practice of democracy has been so central to our Unitarian Universalist movement that we made it our fifth principle, right? The right of conscience and the use of the democratic process both in our congregations and in society at large. And more than a decade before President uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, it was actually a Unitarian minister, uh, minister, Theodore Parker, who coined the phrase, a democracy of all the people, by all the people, and for all the people. But here's the thing about democracy. When you have a vote of all the people, by all the people, they don't always vote for all the people right? Democracy is a valuable method of governance, but it is not a guarantee of good outcomes. I don't know if that's a spoiler alert for for anybody. Uh, In a democracy, the people are free to choose, and sometimes the people's choices are out of alignment with our UU values. And we need to be honest that globally, there are a number of authoritarians in power who either reject or seek to undermine the rule of law, the separation of powers, and democratic voting. Some of the most uh, prominent examples currently are Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, Kaczynski in Poland, Putin in Russia, Modi in India, former President Trump here in the United States, and the recently elected Italian prime minister, Georgiana Maloney. She's really scary. I don't know if you've watched her uh, speak. Uh, It's a lot. But it's important not to miss the good news, even with all of that being true. Despite the desperate and dangerous uh, attempts at election denial, including the horrifying, and I think we need to say treasonous, uh, January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, our 45th president did lose the election in 2016 and was forced to leave office. And only days ago, the Brazilian authoritarian Bolsonaro lost the presidential election. Now, he only won with 50.9% of the vote, so he you know, eked out a victory, but it was nonetheless a notable defeat for authoritarianism around the world. And for now, I want to invite us to focus on two ways of protecting our democracy here in the U.S. by by preventing some of the causes and the conditions that often allow authoritarians to come to power. The first is decreasing extreme wealth inequality. And the second is increasing voter turnout. There's a lot of other things to talk about, but we have about 20. My preaching professor used to say, sermons should be about something sacred in about 20 minutes. So this is what we can get to in in that time. So let's start with closing the wealth gap, uh, which allows the ultra-rich to have undue influence over our politics, and it creates resentment among the poor and, um, and others. And Cynical politicians can then manipulate those resentments. So as our guide, I'll be drawing from the incredible work of the French economist Thomas Piketty. Over the past two years, he's written three vast tomes that weigh in at more than a thousand pages each. Have any of you read one? I know some of you have read. uh, Okay, I see some hands out there. All right, I'm impressed. All right. Uh, The most well-known is uh, Capital in the 21st Century, and it's allusion, of course, to Marx's famous book, Das Kapital. Uh, Piketty wisely has now tried to distill kind of the essence of those 3,000-plus pages into a 200-page summary titled A Brief History of Equality. 
Unfortunately, I don't think this book as, is as accessible as he intended it to be. Uh, I mean, I'm a really big nerd, and I have waded through um, one and a half of those uh, thousand-page tomes. And this summary, at a few points, I was still like, dude, break it down a little more. <laughs> like, uh, take it down a few notches. Uh, seriously, though, do check out this book. It is really quite accessible in places, and I give you permission to skim through the really boring parts. <laughs> At the same time, I want to underscore that there are parts of this book that are really, really interesting and really, really important. And I want to share just a few highlights with all of you. I want to start with some good news, that though there really are some serious threats to our democracy today, we humans have also made some remarkable progress of late in trying to take care of everybody that kind of prevents authoritarians coming to power. If we look at the history of change over the past two centuries, there is significant overall movement toward we the people around the world moving toward equality uh, in terms of race and gender and economics and access to education and healthcare and life expectation and more. Even if there's a lot more work to be done in those areas, there has been tremendous, tremendous strides of progress. I'm going to limit myself to two representative examples, and that is health and education. And if you'll kind of, all you really need to see on that slide is there's this remarkable swoop upward, right? That's the thing. Over the past two centuries, average life expectancy worldwide has increased by a remarkable 46 years. That's a lot. The difference between dying at 26 years, which was the average in 1820, to dying around 72 years, this is worldwide, in the US it's a little bit higher, 72 in 2020, that's remarkable. During that same 200 year period, literacy rates for adults worldwide have increased sevenfold. Uh, so from 12% to 85%. That, again, is really remarkable. Next, since Piketty is an economist, let's tighten our focus to the 20th century and let's switch to one of Piketty's favorite topics. Show me the money, right? Uh, so here we get with that. And the important thing to see here is the kind of the, the richest are at the top and the poorest are at the bottom. And notice how they kind of start to meet in the middle. And then starting in 1980, thank you Reagan and Thatcher and neoliberalism, they start dividing back up. So let me say a little more about that. So notice that between 1914 and 1980, in both the US, represented by the red lines, and in Europe, represented by the blue lines, there is this tremendous redistribution of wealth. Should there have been even more? Probably so, in my judgment, your mileage may vary, uh, that we and we significantly increased equality. The richest 10% are again at the top, trending downward. The poorest 50% at the bottom, trending upward. This great redistribution happened for two major reasons. First, we significantly strengthened the social safety net. We said to live a, live a dignified life, we're going to create a stable floor beneath which no one has to sink too far. Second, we paid for that social safety net, even if we probably need more of a social safety net and we need to be paying more, we paid through it by a progressive tax. So that the more you make, the more you get taxed on income and inheritance. And at the risk of being too flippant, it was a pretty basic strategy of tax the rich because that's where the extra money is. That's basically what we did. And let me hasten to add that no one, or at least not me, someone probably out there, but very few people, and certainly not me, is saying that we all need to be absolutely equal. That's actually not my goal. 
There is value in profit motive. I really do think that sometimes people work harder and put in longer hours and like create really amazing stuff because of prestige, because they're paid more. That can really be a motivation. Uh, some people work harder. They bring a lot of unique value to society. I think they should be compensated. But profit as the only bottom line is toxic to our society and to our planet. We need what is sometimes called the triple bottom line, not just the bottom line of money alone and just do whatever it takes to increase shareholder value. The triple bottom line adds people and planet to the equation. Focusing on profit alone has led to the exploitation of people and to the destruction of our planet, which creates the conditions in which it is easier for authoritarians to come to power. To have a more sustainable future for all, for all the people, for all of we the people, we need to factor into our economic calculus both the well-being of all human beings, we could even say all sentient beings, and to the impact on the environment. And despite the allusion to Marx in Piketty's most famous book, neither he nor I is proposing a communist revolution. No one, certainly not me, is saying that we should become Bolsheviks. And I am definitely not interested in any form of totalitarianism. But I am saying that both here and around the world, we might all, all of us, we the people, be better off if we started trending much more to some kind of social democratic model, something like, don't make me more like Norway, right? No, maybe that would be a good thing, right? Some of like the Nordic countries. So how do we get there? The thing is, we already know the way. Notice this green line represents the U.S. in this chart. The way that we and many other countries created greater equality for a significant portion of the 20th century was through progressive taxation. Specifically here in the U.S., the top rate for federal income tax, that is the rate applicable to the highest incomes, rose from 7% in 1913 to 77% in 1918. Um, if we just look at 1932 to 1980, that was nearly half a century when the average tax rate was 81%, right? 81%. We've done this before, and the result was what we saw, this decline in inequality. Starting in 1980, however, we began eliminating progressive tax policies that targeted the richest uh, among us, and predictably, the wealth gap between rich and poor began widening with the same vigor at which it had previously closed. Some of you may be wondering, so what should the ideal wealth gap be? Well, that, that's a matter of debate. I don't know exactly what it should be. People have been asking that question for a long time. If we look to the birthplace, birthplace of democracy in ancient Greece, the philosopher Plato was aware of these concerns. He was deeply concerned for the potential of demagogues to manipulate people's emotions and prejudices and to prevent the unequal, unfair conditions in which demagogues could have the most influence, Plato thought the wealth gap should be something like one to four. That is, the richest person in society should be no more than four times wealthier than the poorest person. Or that means if we had a minimum wage of $15 an hour, which we do not everywhere, then we would also need to have a maximum wage of $60 an hour. Today in the U.S., the average CEO pay rate is around $387 per hour. That's more than 50 times our actual federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. 
That's more than 13 times the maximum threshold that Plato thought was wise. If he were alive today, Plato would be quite unsurprised at the anti-democratic results that our extreme wealth gap has wrought. Mix in some racism and some xenophobia and desperate people and resentful people become powder kegs ready to explode. Now, I don't know if any of you saw the recent New York Times article that was trying to get us to grok just how rich Jeff Bezos is compared to the rest of us, uh, the founder of Amazon. Here's just a few comparative examples. Um, so if you were an Amazon warehouse worker, you know, we, we tell people, you just need to work harder, right? That's all you need to do. So if you're an Amazon warehouse worker, to reach Jeff Bezos' level of wealth, you would have needed to begin work in the Pliocene epoch. Uh, 4.5 million years ago when hominids were just starting to stand on two feet. Or if we were to compare the median U.S. Um, household, the, uh, the median U.S. household, uh, their wealth is $118,000, 118,200. If we compared that, 118,000, to Bezos' net, net worth of $172 billion, not million, 172 billion, that's equivalent to the difference between a single peanut and a one ton of peanut butter. That's the difference. It's the difference between the size of a single white blood cell and the length of a thin back whale. It's the difference between a speck of fingernail dust and a man who is five foot seven. We are talking about a mind-bogglingly vast wealth gap between the richest, the ultra-wealthy, and the rest of us. And it is truly a cancer on our body politic. And we haven't even gotten into billionaire Elon Musk buying Twitter. <laughs> One possible takeaway of all of this is to sharpen your pitchforks. There is even serious calls for a movement to ban billionaires. Again, no one is trying to, this is the t, oh, sorry, I went too far. That's the t-shirt if you want to ban billionaires. There's even serious calls for a movement to ban billionaires. Again, no one is saying we have to be equal, but maybe there is a point at which the tax rate should be 100%, such that no single small set of individuals amasses an unfair influence on our democracy. And I promise you that Jeff Bezos and his fellow billionaires, they'll be okay in the high hundred millions. They'll make it, I promise. The reason Piketty, I know, I know, we really are, my heart breaks, right? Uh, the reason Piketty has taken time to trace this historical data is to remind us that the way things are with this extreme wealth gap is not the way they've always been, and it is not the way it always has to be. We humans have made remarkable strides towards equality on multiple fronts over the past few decades, and although there have been, they have been rapidly reversing in recent decades, we the people have the power to reverse them again toward creating a more level playing field for everyone. As many of you have heard me quote before from the science fiction writer Ursula K. Le Guin, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, but so too did the divine right of kings. Right? That used to seem inescapable as well. She concluded any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings, because she was saying, that divine right of kings, that was a human being telling you that, right? So too is like how things have to be economically. That's just 
Whatever a human being has created, we human beings can change. And it's not a coincidence that the 200 years of progress toward equality for we the people began around the time of the American Revolution and the French Revolution, right? Get out your guillotine, you know, let them eat cake, all that stuff, right, was of getting rid of the divine right of kings and creating more liberty and equality and brotherhood, as they would say in the late 1800s, long before second wave feminism. And we don't need billionaires as functional monarchs to take the place of the divine right of kings. For now, I want to invite you to imagine one other social change that could help we the people become more involved in our futures and in the democratic process, especially as far too many politicians are seeking to undermine many citizens' access to voting. It's a proposal that is particularly resonant with the universalist half of our Unitarian Universalist heritage, and that is universal voting. If you're curious to learn more, I recommend this book, uh, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. It's by E.J. Dionne. How many of you know Dionne's been writing? You know, he's been writing for, I don't know, forever, and then you're in the Washington Post, right? Many of them know him. He's a longtime Washington Post columnist and a Georgetown University professor, and Rappaport is a fellow at the Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, this is a very short, accessible book. In 2020, turnout was 67% for eligible voters. That's not terrible, but it's not great when we have like existential threats to our uh, democracy. And that was actually the highest in 120 years. For Election Day on Tuesday, we UUs um, throughout the country, as well as many others, have been engaged in UU the Vote and similar projects. Uh, and we've been engaged in Get Out the Vote efforts for months. I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. I'm really grateful to Intern Minister Catherine for her leadership in this. You can see we've met three of our four goals. We are over 50% with postcards. We've sent close to 4,000 postcards. We've sent close to 70,000 text messages. Uh, we have poll workers. More than 20% of you in this congregation have been involved. So all that's really good. Uh, if you know of anyone 18 or older who hasn't voted, please urge them to vote, right, over the next few days. Please, we can all individually help with that. And runoffs may give us a chance to finish our goals with postcards uh, to be determined. But my more important point is we shouldn't have to work so hard uh, to make our democracy work. And Dion and Rappaport invite us to consider a paradigm shift, and that paradigm shift is universal civic duty voting. What if voting were a civic duty, just like jury duty, just like registration for selective service, the census, schooling for minors, paying taxes? It's just something you have to do as a citizen. It becomes your civic duty. To protect individual liberty, an option to vote none of the above can be added to the ballot. If this proposal seems vaguely familiar, uh, back in 2015, President Obama was talking about uh, universal civic voting um, a lot. And importantly, this idea is not theoretical. Civic duty voting has been practiced for years in Australia and a number of other countries, uh, almost two dozen countries, actually. In most of these countries, voter turnout is in the 90% range. So to me, that's really interesting. This is a very specific, concrete way to move our voter engagement from like the high 60s or lower to like over the 90s, and especially in like midterm elections. That's impressive, especially since the penalty for not voting is about 20 bucks. So like it's not extreme. You don't like go to jail. You don't go to voting jail. But it's like it works. 
Instead of being a burden, many Australians have found that universal civic duty voting has made election day into a can't-miss event. In the words of one New York Times article on civic duty voting in Australia, one Australian said, it's like a party. We throw a, a barbecue at every school and every polling place. Everybody turns up, everybody votes, and there's a sense that we're all in this together and that we're all affected by the decisions that are made on election day. Regardless of the election results on Tuesday, our, um, our work to build a more perfect union must continue. In the words of Michelle Alexander, who's the author of The New Jim Crow, she's written that a new nation is struggling to be born here in the U.S. A multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, egalitarian democracy in which every life and every voice truly matters. In recent years, we've seen glimpses of this new nation that is striving to be born. We've seen it in Standing Rock. We've seen it in the streets of Ferguson, in the eyes of the dreamers seeking immigration justice, in the voices of teenagers from Parkland and Chicago, as well as in lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender pride festivals. We've seen it at the Women's March in the camps of Occupy Wall Street. We've seen it in Confederate statues coming down and new memorials and statues going up, honoring victims of lynching, as well as the courageous souls who fought for the abolition of slavery and against Jim Crow. The results of the democratic process are never guaranteed. But I'm grateful to be on this journey with all of you of working to build a better future, to build a world with peace and liberty and justice, not merely for some, not merely for an elite few, but truly and genuinely for all. In that spirit, please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together in your gray hymnal, number 121, We'll Build a Land, We the People. <laughs>